G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. So good evening all and tonight we have with us obviously Ian and Jonathan McGee from the United Kingdom. G'day Jonathan. Hi guys, how are you? And g'day Ian. Hey Mark, back at another one. It is, it is. Now, we're pretty excited about this one because uh, this is our second international podcast. Um, sorry, Jonathan, Steve Kelly beat you to the punch. And we managed, yes, to, talk to, <laughs> we managed to talk to speed. So tonight, we really want to uh, have a great conversation around some of the work you're doing in, uh, certainly in the area of, of video production for hunting and fishing. And I think a lot of people be really interested in some of the, 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 the high-end professional stuff you're doing. But also, we want to talk to you about your hunting experiences. But what I thought I'd do before we jump into it, um, just to give a bit of an, a longer introduction, if I think about how you and I first met, we're actually um, a, one of those rare group of people who actually met on Facebook and turned it into something more than just, you know, chatting on Facebook. If I remember correctly, you and I first kind of encountered each other on a um, a Facebook page, a hunting page, which has ceased to exist, I think, and had, and went through a great deal of turmoil and, and controversy, that Facebook page. But it was initially a hunting page, and you and I started to talk on that be about 10 years ago now. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah it must be 10 years. And I think, wasn't there an idea that you were coming across, you wanted to do some shooting, Yeah, and we sort of we pulled together a little day's pigeon shooting, didn't we? Which, I mean, it, it wasn't as successful as some of, the, some of the pigeon shooting that you get in here in the UK, but we still got you your first, we your first pigeons. We got to see it recovered. You saw, you know, you saw a bit of our wildlife over here, didn't you? And it was, it was actually quite oh, yeah. a good day in the end. Nice and yeah, cold. That, and... That was, it was most certainly a, a memorable day. And there's actually a tiny bit of video floating around somewhere of me missing on the first barrel and hitting in the second barrel, I think. But anyway, I think more yeah. importantly was the fact that we were able to turn that conversation into something, you know. So, you know, as you said, we were going to England as a family and um, for holiday and, you know, I said, hey, I'm actually coming over. And he said, oh, well, great. And there was a bit of logistics and I had to borrow a car and drive down to a place and meet you. And we ended up, <laughs> yeah. it was really, really interesting because for a lot of different reasons, one that, you know, we basically organised a hunt over Facebook over I don't know how many thousands of kilometres and managed to bring it all together. But for me, the big, I suppose, the big takeaway from it was the difference between the English hunting countryside and Australia. Because we, uh, if I remember correctly, there was a guide who kind of organised this hunt for us who himself is involved was a bit later on involved in a bit of controversy which yeah. we'll, avoid, we'll avoid but anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll avoid we we, we got to this yeah. paddock and it, and it was just basically 
it was a pea field if I remember correctly, and it was behind a church. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it was so close to this church that you could hear the bell ringing and you could see the back door of the church. You know, we we're like literally in the yeah, back yeah, yeah. yard of a church. Well, this this is field. this is hunting in the UK. I mean, I say hunting in the UK. This is pest control in the UK. We have to. We have crops absolutely everywhere, and the pigeons, the pigeons in the right time of year can decimate the crops. So if the pests are there and you're within, you're over 50 yards of a public highway, you can shoot the pests legally. Yeah. I mean, there's different licensing and stuff that's coming to fruition now. But yeah, back then, 10 or so years ago, you could literally pitch up with the permission of the person who owned that field. You could pitch up there within 50 yards. So long as you're safe, you can shoot the pigeons. And I, I, I pigeon in the UK is probably one of the best. And if you're lucky enough to have the land, one of the, you know, it's it's free. You can shoot pigeons all day long. You could shoot hundreds of pigeons all day long. And they are one of the best tasting birds we have in the country as well. And yeah, we, we weren't as lucky. I mean, we've been on days where you'll shoot three or 400 pigeons in a day, have a thousand shots. It, it, it is a bit like Argentina in some cases. Um, but yeah, that, that was a great day. I think we finished on like 30 or 40 pigeons. Yeah, or something, maybe. Got some... If that, yeah, yeah. But it was... It's good. And we're in this field and behind us was a walking track. Or, you know, so every so often yep. you could hear someone and you could hear someone walking yeah. behind you, <laughs> walking their dog yeah. behind yeah. you. And, uh, yeah, so we set up this blind. Uh, the guy dropped us, the guide, as he was, dropped us off in this paddock and said, like, I'll see you in eight hours. We set up this blind. He left his dog with us, if I remember correctly, and we rang him up and said, come back and get that stupid dog because it just kept on disappearing. Um, so he came and picked up his dog. And we set up the blind there and we uh, and we yeah, we yeah we spent the day there. It was a, it was um it wasn't winter though. It was, uh, I can't remember what time of year it was. It wasn't winter. It was strange, but it was a very it pleasant been, I think it was quite it was later on in the year though, I think. I think yeah, it was still it was relatively a, cold. Yeah, it, was it wasn't really a wasn't pleasant so day. It was, you know, yeah. it, was, it wasn't cold, but it was, it was very cool. And we yeah. had we had that old Lamba, which you had, and you had that. Yeah, um, yeah. It was what was the? It was a the Italian auto loader. I can't think of the name of it. Oh, it was a breeder or something like that. I think at, yeah. at that point, or well, Bet, yeah, Bet and Solly or something like that. It was an older gun mm -hmm. which I'd got from one of my clients at that point. But yeah, we we do a lot of that sort of stuff though. So if we have, um, if I'm lucky enough to be in touch with someone on Facebook. Uh, and there's quite a few guys who've come across from Spain, from Italy and from France and things like that. I, I do I do try and take them out. I have a little shoot syndicate, which is about an hour from my house. And you guys will hate me for this. An hour. And we can travel and go and shoot pheasants. And oh, oh. we're looking to have a cool house and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong. I can, I can walk three metres out my door here and take the dog and, mm. and go bunny shooting. Um, that's yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. I'm talking about chasing uh, bigger game when we've got to go a bit further, but yeah, certainly um, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. a lot of small game stuff available. I just um, have never really been into it enough to um, to bother with it. Um, but it's yeah, something yeah, yeah. I'm starting to want to do more that I've picked up a you know a, a bow or a, you know a, a traditional bow, and it's nice to take the dog and she flushes them out, and that's excellent. I wanted to touch on something you said though. Pigeon tastes nice. It does. Oh yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. Mark, you've tried it. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's really um, interesting and... you say that with the accent that you have, uh, because uh, <laughs> I was on a I was on a, a trip in um, Egypt, uh, maybe five six years ago, and um, there was uh, a couple of English fellas on that trip, 
and we stopped at a, a restaurant. We were on um, one of the rivers. We've been on a felucca or something like that. And we stopped at a restaurant and this English fella ordered pigeon. And mm. I, like here, I just, they're rats with wings. Um, you know, yeah, probably, yeah. probably wouldn't touch them. Or maybe you should, but <laughs> you don't tend to. Um, anyway, he ordered this pigeon um, and it came out like I thought it would. It looked like it had been run over a thousand times by a truck and left in the sun on the road mm. for about four days. It was just a, a thin black thing, sort of shaped like a bird. It <laughs> had been rolled over by a, nice. by a truck. Um, I'd never heard anyone say pigeon tastes good. Oh, so, yeah. Well, I think I the, the difference is the, pig, the pigeon over here is a real, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a delicate, well, it should be considered a delicacy. You get obviously the street pigeons and the feral stuff that hangs around the towns, but we're talking about a, a pristine game bird, which comes across, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good sort of size, like two chicken breasts sort of size. Like it's a good sized bird with lots of meat on it. And what we tend to do, especially if we're shooting in the field, we'll, we'll take some cooking stuff with us. We'll take some peppers, some chilies, some garlic, and we'll stir fry pigeon breasts whilst we're shooting. So you literally, you've got your little camp soaked down, you shoot a pigeon, two minutes later, it's in the pan, you're cooking it, you've got fajitas or wraps. And, you know, it's it's the it's probably, in the UK especially, it's probably one of the best, leanest, healthiest sources of game meat you'll find, which is it's just fantastic, really, really good. Fascinating. I'd recommend you try it. It'll be I'm different, well. I think, in Egypt. I think in Egypt, you'll probably be eating doves rather than pigeon, which are, they're a lot smaller and they probably are cooked Cook, they'll, they'll cook the hell out of it, won't they? Whereas we, we'll have it like steak, almost rare in the middle. Right. Oh, and mouth, like, mouth is watering. Anything yeah. like what's here? Um, yeah, the the, I mean, there's similar birds. So there's, um, so, so I ended up taking a fair bit of meat that day. And since that time, so strangely enough, whenever I go to England, I, f I feed the family game meat. And that's, often the only time they get it when i'm there so yeah, yeah. and i've got some photos of, of of i've got some photos of the of of doing the meals with the um with the pigeon but what i found was that the um and what might put people off is that there was real variances in the quality of the animal just like any yeah. game meat so you know and remember you know you're shooting pigeons so the first shot might or whatever shot you land it might be a, an animal in its prime and then you might shoot an older one next to it. And by when you cut up all the breasts, you know, so some of them are a bit tougher than others and stuff like that. But, you know, and so you got that, you got a, a real variance. And so, and we were trying to, you know, trying to figure out which one was the better one to eat simply <laughs> by looking at it going, okay, is that going to cook better and stuff like that? But you cook it very much like a, uh, like any, because remember no fat in it. So you cook it like any game meat, and it's quite a red meat too, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So you cook it, you know, and it's medallion sized. It's it's not like a it's not like a you know a, a shopping center chicken breast, which is you know like you know Dinosaur. Godzilla, Godzilla chicken bread. It's yeah. a it's a game animal, so it's you know so it's a relatively small size medallion, and you just pan fry them very quickly, and they're they're fantastic, mate. Um, hmm. And yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, I uh, we you know we I think we got three or four meals out of that first um and like and they kind of went you know oh, we're not sure and I said oh give me the ear so I was I was I was cooking and eating myself and it's, it was yeah. I, I really did enjoy it and I would assume that like anything here if you were to shoot a 
you know, pigeon in the Brisbane CBD, it might be a little bit rancid, but, you know, <laughs> a, a, a pigeon that's living yeah. around a farm that's eating off grain and stuff like that is going to be like any other kind of animal, um, you know? Same, yeah, really good. I mean, and, and that, that, sort of, that sort of brings me back to, like, how we met and and, and things in the UK. So we, we do have such an abundance of shooting in the UK that – I do, I do try and take people out. So I was saying our little syndicate, it's an hour from the house. We can shoot pheasants, grouse, snipe, woodcock, uh, a lot of different water birds, teal, there's the occasional goose, duck and stuff like that. And it, people don't have access to that sort of stuff. So when I do get in touch with someone who is visiting from, you know, Europe or somewhere like that, that doesn't have access to that, we do, we do tend to do swaps. So I'll get some, you know, guys will come over, they'll shoot a little pheasant day or something like that with me. Then I'll go over there and, I don't know, stalk some ibex or something like that in Spain, or we'll Try. go and shoot some sand. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, exactly, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, shooting in this country varies. You can spend two hundred pounds on a small sort of pheasant day or something like that, and shoot yeah. actual, actual proper driven pheasant, or you could spend five thousand pounds and shoot five hundred of the highest pheasants in the world, or you could spend twenty thousand pounds and shoot grouse all day long to your heart's content. It's we are absolutely spoiled in the UK. We've got six different types of deer, all within six hours' drive of where where my house is. And or, I think, or you could shoot, basically shoot pigeons for free. Yeah, if you've got the land, you can shoot pigeons for free. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah, so we are spoiled. And, we are absolutely spoiled. And uh, and the the pigeon is is very similar to duck. You know, it's behind a blind or, or you know that type of thing. So it's actually yeah. quite. Um, and I, I've been out a couple of times down with different people. So the, the second time I went over, that's when we actually did the um, the the driven pheasant. That's where we yeah. stayed up at. So that was and that was the full full Monty stayed at the country home overnight. Had to borrow tweeds and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. think I think at the time you, and you you and Steve. Yes, it's Steve, and uh, and I yeah, think yeah. at the time, um, you stuck a long thorn in my paw and said, "Use this for the day," which is what, what was only what what twenty five thousand pounds or something like that. That shotgun, or something like that. Yeah, you said, "Yeah, just little, use this little thing." Cheap one. <laughs> I said, "Just use this thing." It was a right hander, and it belted the hell out of me. But I was glad to use it. Yeah. So we and that was a yeah, and drive. So that was. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think we did. Um, that was a place called Last Kill in North Yorkshire. That's Again, that's about 50 minutes from where I live. Um, and we we filmed that day. So, you know, mm. your viewers can watch that little tiny film of, you know, us guys trying to hit these fantastic pheasants coming off the hill. And it, it wasn't a big day. It wasn't busy by any means. It was just, uh, I think we ended up shooting about 50 or 60 pheasants, all sort of good driven, good driven high pheasants. Um, and yeah, that, that worked quite nicely. I think they were hoping for a lot more birds, but... Do you remember how icy it was on that day? Like, yeah, we couldn't I... drive anywhere. Every, most of the team got stuck. Everyone was falling over because every single road, it was like minus four or something, wasn't it? It, was, it wasn't <laughs> the best conditions at all. But, yeah, it's, it's, it was nice to see you. And, I mean, Steve's probably had a bit more experience now. But for you guys to shoot a bird which could be 40 or 50 yards away and then understanding that the amount of lead that you need to give a pheasant that is going... 40 odd miles an hour which is 40 yards away and you've got to aim four or five meters in front of it it's, it's mm. it, it takes some practice it really does but it, it does. it's nice to see other people do it yeah that was a that was i actually 
that day I fell over and I remember I fell over in front of yeah. a few people and I hit, you know, literally, well, I didn't, I was walking. I went yeah. up and bang and hit the ground. And I remember I went, you know, and I got up and went, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. okay. And I was like three days later, I was just a cripple. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah, I'm a farmer. Yeah. Hey, there's like, just walk it off, walk it off. But it took the, knocked yeah. that hell out of me. Yeah. Hit that ice. But that was that was true, and you know, I it was the first time I ever shot a high bird, and I remember them coming out, and like again, my very limited experience with shotgun is shooting pigs at within ten yards with buckshot. So you know, yeah, there's this thing in the air, and it's this dot, and it's moving at a yeah. rapid rate of rods, and they go shoot that thing, and you kind of go with a shotgun, you what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what? And like say yeah. bang, bang, mix. And what they were doing was very gently they put better shots behind. They often had a they, they often had like a guy who was like in a key position right at the very end. And so I missed twice. And then I'm watching it go over. And so it's further and higher now. And the guy behind and down it comes like a, you know, like a like a plane. Yeah. Pow. Oh yeah. God. that's but some shooting. That is some shooting. It was wasn't an easy day by any means though no. so uh, it, you know a lot of people shoot a lot of those days and still miss all those birds yeah it, it's but again in in the uk i mean i know it's starting to take off a bit more in new zealand and we have you know there's argentinian shooting there's spanish shooting you can shoot pheasants like that in hungary and like eastern europe and stuff like that but again in, in the uk we have these these days where they will put on birds that are out of range they'll push pheasants off the top of mountains and stuff mm. like that in wales and devon and stuff like that and it's i think i think it's worth trying um but again you are pushing the guns the ballistics and everything to to the extreme and within hunting in the uk we've got to be careful because we don't want to be wounding stuff same as you yep. guys you, you don't want to prick a bird and it fly a mile and then die slowly you want to be making sure that if you are shooting at something and it, it it's knocked out of the sky and, and dies because it's it's food consumption at the end of the day. Yeah. And if I remember, we, we now we stayed at the that that the the, the um, estate there on that night, and the next day we actually went deer hunting. Yeah. With a couple of um, that's true. I I had completely right. forgotten about that. Yeah. So we went with a couple of deer colours, and um, uh, we I think we yeah we got. I, I got one and Steve, I think, managed to take two on that day. So we went for it. So that was a great little, you know, two-day event, um, putting together yeah. a, a bird hunt and a deer hunt. That was a fantastic, a fantastic. Your rifle had a slight, your rifle had a quite oh. hair trigger, didn't it, Oof. Mark? Yeah. So I was shooting a, I was, so basically I was shooting the, um, the, 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 the colours rifle. And it was, uh, it was like something like a 260 AI. Um, yeah, big, but complete, big complete sort of scope, you know, 56 mil front objective, uh, huge uh, suppressor hanging off the front end, and this ridiculously light trigger and shooting off sticks. So, very, very, and and to be you know, not to be unkind, he was about five foot three. This guy, so he goes, he gets on the sticks, and I'm like. So, I'm, I'm, you know, my legs are about as far as apart as I can get yeah. to get down to the thing and just line up, yeah. on, line up on this deer and boom, boom, oh, wee. And, yeah, I got it. Shot it right in the head, actually. Um, but it was just, oh, wow, that 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 that's a light trigger. And the, when I shot yeah. it, 
because he said, you know, head, he said, if you can head shoot him, head shoot him if you can, because they're recovering them for me. So I did. Went, oh, wow. That was, and then I kind of stopped and he kind of, and there was more deer and he goes, what are you doing? I'm going, oh, oh sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I'm here to kill more. Yeah. So I went, oh, hang on and cranked it and they, they moved off by then. But, the, you know, it was a real different, they were there to, to, to put numbers down. So that was yeah, a, yeah. that was a really interesting um, day too. Uh, I think S Steve managed to take took his own rifle that ride, shooting a two seventy. But I was borrowing this, um, and it was a very heavy rifle. It was a really heavy barrel, but also um, yeah, yeah, big heavy uh, fiberglass stock. The other thing is too, he was a bit surprised when I started dragging the deer out. He was kind of went, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, okay, you know, he was, he, he didn't know what to do, you know, he did, he went, yeah, oh, this, yeah. you know, he's an Aussie, he doesn't know what he's I doing, think... it's just, I just went and picked it up and started dragging it out, and he could, he, yeah. he was unsure, he, 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 he realised my intention was good, but it was, uh, it was, you know, not, 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 not against, or it was not in the keeping with what the usual rules of what happened. I think I think again over here, like you can go out deer stalking and use someone else's rifle. Um, even let me get this right. Can do you need a license? I think you can still go out and shoot someone else's rifle without a license. Possibly. Don't hold me on that. But again, license. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think um, and with those sort of days, if you're paying a stalker, a lot of the times they want to do everything. So like the professional stalker who's there as your guide will be like. Right, I'll grolic it, I'll drag it out for you, I'll carry it out for you, I'll carry the rifle, I'll put the sticks up for you. And it's like, that's great, but it's not the experience. But for me personally, I'm carrying the rifle, I'm doing the dragging, I'll grolic it. And then you've got, you know, you've got blood all over you, you piss wet through, you're dirty and that. And But for that's, that's deer stalking. Like we went up to Scotland, and I was lucky enough to go up with a client in Scotland and a, a good friend and the whole team. And honestly, I, I filmed... Uh, I filmed for four days and then my uh, my friend was lucky enough. He just shot a really good, a really good stag. And I was setting up on this hill and he said, look, look, I've just shot one. There's no point me shooting two in one day. You go and shoot that one. So I crept down this little valley um, and this, this like little, what they call a switch, which just basically has like a, I think it's a younger stag, which isn't going to make much of a head. So it has like one quite long sort of spike and a couple of brow tines. And I was just about to pull this trigger on this little stag um, when that sort of moved off down the hill. And we heard this bellow from a bit up higher and then this much bigger 12 pointing thing. Like, but an older stag, which was going back, appeared on the horizon and the stalker, like the professional, grabbed the gun, swung it round and said, shoot that one. And I've got this, this, this image just looking through the scope of just some peaks of Scottish mountains with mist on the background, this beautiful sort of stag there in the foreground. And then just shooting it and it dropping on the spot. But going back to the point, on those sort of days, you have um, the stalking guide with you who's, who's there essentially to put the to put you on the deer, and he'll sort the rifle out, he'll carry the rifle, all that sort of stuff. And then you have another another younger lad normally because it's very hard work who will drag the deer off the hill for you, which is like oh, wow, that's that's just amazing. And I mean, you you pay for the privilege to do all these things, obviously, but I, I quite enjoy the being knackered at the end of the day, being soaking wet through, but actually having this, you know, this, this, well, essentially this trophy and this meat on the table at the end of it, I think that's part of the day. So I think, yeah, like, like you, Mark, it's quite nice to get stuck in, isn't it? And, and you know, 
drag the deer off. And even though that day it was disgustingly wet and muddy, and mm. it's still quite nice to get stuck in. Yeah, yeah so. well, it was it was for me, you know, it was just the just went, well, shot deer, I'm gonna go get it type thing, you know, that's what you're gonna do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a yeah, foreign, yeah, yeah. it's a very foreign experience to us because you know, our our typical hunting experience is that we we book a piece of land either privately or you know we've got public land access that we can go to we book that piece of land and and off you go you, you you're not with a guide you're not with you potentially it's the first time you've even been into that piece of land you don't know anything about it you're figuring it out as you go and you're stalking animals yeah, you, yeah. Away from the tar, you could be backpacking you don't know where you're going to end up that's really up to how well prepared you are and how far you want to push yourself if you take an animal at that point you yeah. know it's up to you but being australia and australia's rules are quite different you can shoot as many deer, goats, pigs, pigeons, pick a product and leave it to rot on the ground. There is no rule about taking it out. Uh, well, now, that's not that's not what we do. I yeah, yeah we, of course. Mark and I, that's not what we do. Um, there are plenty of people that are shooting these animals because they're pests. And in Australia, they're fairly well categorised as as um, as pests, not as game. Uh, and yeah. that's just how they, they, a lot of people deal with them that way. And that's... That's sad, but that's the way it is. Um, to the point where a number of government um, departments around Australia, various different state authorities, um, they'll just cull them with helicopters, and that's, that's they just blow hundreds of them away and just leave them on on the ground. So you know yeah. we've got a long way to come, and when it comes to um, treating them as a as a resource or an asset or something that we can you know monetize like you guys are doing, but um, that's that's the state. Well, of it. so it's quite different. But yeah, I'm saying that too. Often you'll see you you'll watch a YouTube video, um, and you'll see a foreigner come over to Australia or to New Zealand, and they'll get the experience that you just described. But it's fairly well the tourist that comes in that goes behind the wire and shoots a nice big stag and gets that full experience of somebody doing all of the work for them. They just manage to shoot them over the apples. Um, because yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. how they lured them in yeah. potentially. But yeah. you know, it's a it's a different market completely i mean on that note on that note of sort of um the game being a product um we're still we're still getting to that point in the uk now um we're still sort of there's still a struggle to find a home for the pheasants the partridge and the venison i mean there's a lot of it still being exported people still don't know um the value of mm. the you know the, the game meat you know we've got this we've got this product which is better for you than chicken it's higher in protein it's got less additives it's got less crap in it. It's been wild almost all of its life, unlike venison. But people still aren't aware that it's it's cheaper and it's easily accessible, and you can have a good fun day out, and you can do like walk twenty miles just to go and get it. It, it, it blows me away that people. It blows me away that people will still eat chicken and stuff at three pound for an entire chicken, yet they won't spend like maybe a pound for a pheasant. Like uh, what for one pound you can buy an entire pheasant? I mean, yeah, it might slough its feathers on, but there's more meat there. It's better for you. It tastes mm. better. We we use it in stir fries. We'll roast everything. Um, I made what did I make the other day? It was um, I took four whole pheasants, breasted them out, and then I put in um, a layer of duck, a layer of widgeon, and then a layer of woodcock, and then like rolled this <laughs> joint about this sort of size, and then covered that in ham covered it in ham because that's the only way the kids will like sort of like look at it so it's like right well we've got this massive like is it a ballantine ballantine something like that and then like roasted that in the oven and the kids were just sat there like yeah they'd pick up bits of shot every now and again but 
They'll get new, <laughs> they'll get new teeth. Yeah, they get I new think... teeth, don't they? They're only young. So. Yeah, that's right. Do, do you not think that um, the reason the pheasant gets left on the shelf, uh, the cheaper but better product, is because everyone's lost the skill to actually pluck that thing and breast it out? They don't, they don't even yeah, know what to do I with mean, it. It's, I, I think it's not, it's not just the fact that you can actually buy sort of ready roasted, ready pheasants roasted, like ready to roast. So you can buy those from the butchers and they probably will still be cheaper dressed mm -hmm. than a pheasant. Um, but I just don't think people associate a pheasant with food. That's, yeah, that's the worry. And they, they wouldn't know that like, like my kids know that when daddy brings home, I mean, my little one, um, when she was about, she was walking and talking. So she was probably about 16 months. My wife sent me a video when I was away, um, away filming of the day before I'd been out shooting. And I'd got a bag of ducks. There was maybe about half a dozen ducks in this bag. And there was this big, like, mallard, this big, like, beautiful blue-headed mallard. And my daughter had grabbed hold of this duck. And she was just sat there watching TV with this duck on her lap, just petting it and going, like, good boy, good boy. I mean, it's, it seems morbid to people, but it's like, you know, that she knows that that's going to be dinner. Mm, and I, yeah. I find it, it's, it's still quite staggering that kids don't know that the chicken they're eating in their nuggets is chicken that once lived on a farm and that sort of stuff. It's, it's, well, it's a, a bizarre, bizarre it's disconnect. A, a different family upbringing with it with, when you're a hunter, um, you know, and yeah. you're someone that's you know a bit more practical about their food. Uh, my son's four. Uh, he's only just turned four, but his favorite, his favorite um, food, if you were ever ask him is steak. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, what do you want for dinner tonight, son? Steak. Okay, and he'll eat yeah. a good three hundred gram steak if if you let him. Like we go to a restaurant, nice. he, he loves it. He'll leave the potatoes and everything else, but that's that's yeah. Um, we had lamb chops yeah. the other day, uh, and and he said, "Dad, this is this is my new favourite." I said, "Oh, it's great." You know, you know what it is. He said, "Yeah, it's lamb chops," and then you know he, he's processed that a little bit and he's eaten a little bit more, and he said, "Dad, which one of the lambs out in the paddock are we going to take out next?" <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're on the right track yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I found with my boys fishing was that was the the way to bring that into the conversation so you know from a very early age they'd go we'd go fishing um you know two and three type thing and they and they'd kind of catch fish at that time but you'd put the fish would be on you put the rod in the hand you get them to reel it in but they immediately associated this idea that you would let most of the fish go, but some you would keep for food. And yeah. there would be a decision-making process that they didn't quite understand why you'd keep that one but not that one, you know. But they understood that there will be a decision made and some of this will be going home with us as food. Most of it's going back into the water. So we do that and we get home and then it would be, you know, a, a process of turning that fish into food. And I've got like photos where I've got them with, you know, you know, little kids' knives, you know, little little tiny. They, yes. I've I've filleted a or I've gutted a whiting, and then they're kind of just doing the same action with their little knives, you know. Yeah. Just understanding that's how you, that's processing that thing into into food, and you know, and, and my my oldest still says, you know, his favourite fish is flathead. That's his favourite fish, and and oh, I. Nice. And, and 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 uh, when I caught that um, when I caught uh, uh, I caught a just under eighty centimeter flathead on the on the coast one day with the boys in the boat. Seventy is the the maximum size you can keep, 
So Flathead have a, both a minimum and a maximum size. So it was over maximum size. So we had to let it go in. And, and you know, he's gone, well, can't we eat it? Why do you let the big ones go? Is that, a, is that the breeding ones? Would that be a stock? That's a breed. That's a, a, a developed breeder. That's the idea, yeah. Right. So, um, so um, what would they taste like? Because I thought I thought the flatheads were like an invasive. Uh, no, you, you might be want. thinking of, you might be thinking oh, of right. American flathead. Flathead. I think the Yanks call a type of catfish a flathead. Here, the snakehead. Yeah, snakehead. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What here is a flathead is is what is really one of the table fish. So, or what were the old style table fish? So there was flathead, whiting, and brim. And flathead are a, a, a longer, obviously a flat fish. They're a longer fish. They're they're a fish that you know hunts off the bottom. So in low tide you'll find their um you'll find their bedding in the in the in the sand. So they actually you'll see the shape in the sand on a on an exposed sandbar. And yeah, and they're a, a voracious ambush fish, huge bucket mouth. So you know they take lures and stuff like that. So it goes past them and they they come out and bucket it and um. The um, the one I got was a really good size one, and it was and on very light line terms, so it was about a twenty minute to get it in the boat. Um, but yeah, he said, well, you know, he was kind of like, oh great, and then I went, no, oh, it's too big, mate. We got to let this one go. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, what? Yeah. Well, I want to eat it. I want to eat it. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I think, and that's what fishing, and that's then translated into into spe specifically venison. Because we've always got venison in the freezer or on the on the plate, um, but that's what that's translated into them. So I'm I'm happy that they understand at least at to that conceptual level that that's what food is. Food isn't yeah. Food isn't a product in itself. It's a, it's the outcome of a process. And I think um, and yeah and probably I think that's what a lot of people is. Food is no longer a, an outcome of a process. Food is at the end product itself. So when you buy that thing from Coles or Woolworths or whatever supermarket, you're buying an end product. There's no like, oh, that piece of steak. Yeah. You know, was something, was something, was something, was something, was something. That's going, oh, I want that piece of steak. That's it. Yeah. So I think that's right. And it's it's our it's our duty to make sure that whatever we're eating has the best life. Yeah. Which I'm we're, hope, we're hoping is starting to come across a bit more in the UK, but the the move towards sort of um the you know the vegan side of things and it, it's horrific like we've got schools now saying that we're going to do no meat mondays rather than promoting a healthy diet with like local produce it's like oh no we'll we'll still ship in you know new zealand lamb that you can eat but we'll we'll make sure that you don't eat meat on mondays there's a massive it, it's it's just, it just appears to be like a money-making sort of racket that uh yeah. people have people have been fed unfortunately same same with you guys though so yes yes very much very true it, um it's changed a lot though i mean i say i've been doing we've had a uh, this little business going for about 10 years now and it, the the change that's come in even in that period has been immense like there's a lot more people now shooting in the uk where the larger sort of pheasant shoots and all that sort of stuff that used to be the norm there's a lot of people now wanting to shoot less birds but have them you know a more um intense experience so you might go and stay somewhere you might shoot a small day you might do a bit more walking you might have more dogs there you might shoot the birds over the dogs 
Um, there's more people now, I think, wanting to do a more wild experience than those days where you might just stand on a peg and have a butler, you know, bring you a glass of champagne and shoot, you know, 100 birds coming over your head. It, it's quite nice to see that there has been a change. People are making it more sporting. I've always been a fan of shooting with smaller calibers, smaller gauges. So rather than shooting um, partridge in early September, that first point when you can shoot the birds when they are a little bit, you know, that they haven't flown, they haven't been pushed over the hedges that many times. It's quite nice to use. I always find a smaller calibre, make it a bit more sporting. And that seems to be quite a nice turn in the tides as well. So there's less people. You could go out there and blast every single one of them with a 12 ball, but it's quite nice to sort of make it a bit more sporting with a smaller gauge you hit or you miss. Mm. which is quite good so yeah there has been a big there has been a big turn in the tides i suppose it, that gives us a good op opportunity to talk about actually what your business is that they said it's 10 years so in 10 years in the making so give us a rundown of actually what your i mean obviously you and i've been speaking for some time but for everyone else what your actual business is that, that could be tricky sort of struggle with myself these days um well the well essentially i i went to university i did a, a degree in uh, architecture architectural technology which is like sort of the sustainable side of architecture um and i was in that industry for six or seven years um but i'd always sort of had the camera out the camera was always coming on the shoot days and stuff with me and then i essentially got more and more people asking me to come on those larger shoot days uh, to take photos and then that sort of blossomed into specific companies wanting me to take photos of specific products in the field um, and then that merged into well if I'm taking the photos why don't we run the social media for you and then that sort of that sort of expanded so now we do a lot of social media management uh, we also do a lot of tv and advertising we just finished a, a fishing tv show called the untamed anglers uh, which went live a couple of weeks ago. Um, we also have another platform called Gunroom Digital, which is essentially we put guns onto a platform for um, shops. So we'll integrate with the shop's website and put all the all their guns onto this website. And then people can go and find hundreds and thousands of guns in one place and they can choose from everything rather than going to individual shops. They can go in one place and see everything. Um, there's all sorts, if I'm honest. Starting a clothing company, uh, the bits and bobs of everything. But yeah, the 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 shooting side of things, um, the shooting photography side of things, has been quite amazing because not only do you get to experience every single type of shooting that we have here in the country, you get to see behind the scenes. You get to see what happens after the shoot days, what happens before the shoot days, the characters that you see on these shoot days. And we've had like teams from Saudi Arabia and stuff flying in on private jets, landing and being picked up by chauffeurs. The chauffeurs then drop them off at the shoot days. They buy all their guns. So they might spend... We, we had one team basically go to a shop in London and buy all their guns just for that one day. Um, and a lot of them didn't even take them home. They were left at the estate. So they might spend £100,000 on a gun and leave it after the day shooting. It's, it, it, some, of, some of it is a different world. Mm. Um, but, you know, that, that wouldn't essentially make it the best day shooting ever because they don't appreciate what they're getting given half the time no but you're getting a uh, different so, experience <laughs> yeah we we've had a lot of different experiences we've been flown in flown to hel flown in helicopters to spain and stuff like that and private jets and things and that that's quite a regular regular thing teams will take their own guns um, and planes and stuff and go over to spain because there's still a lot of partridge shooting over there which is really really spectacular 
Um, but yeah, we've experienced every every single type of driven shooting and walked up shooting and stuff in the UK, I think, by now. And is it primarily Which is very special? Is it primarily the birds that you're videoing? This is your specialty. You're not, or are you expanding into deer and 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 various other larger game? Um, yeah, I've I've done bits and bobs of all sorts. We've filmed ibex and stuff like that in Spain, and the i the ibex in in Spain is one of my is absolutely thrilling. It's probably one of my favourite. I, I love deer stalking, but ibex is something special. The the sustainability of uh, and the conservation behind the ibex in Spain is quite amazing. So they they were basically extinct at one point. Um, before, let me get this. One of the kings can't remember which basically just put a ban on shooting them and um, they built up the population and then sort of started giving subsidies back to the farmers for not shooting them. So they'd allow the Ibex to sort of um, essentially run wild. And then if, if there was damage, you'd get a subsidy back, which is quite a, quite an amazing way to build a population. And now obviously you have um, uh, outfitters in Spain who can, who you can go to and speak to and they will charge you X amount of money to shoot an Ibex off a certain piece of land. Um, so that that in itself is one of the reasons why I do like shooting ibex over there because the the conservation side of things they've got it down to an absolute T. Because it is monitored, it's on a tag tag by tag basis. You have to show proof of what you've shot with photographs, with um, evidence of the size of the the horn and the antler and all that sort of stuff. Horn, um, but yeah, I've got a big piece of sun in my face there. But yeah, no, that's um, we've been all over. We've filmed fishing in Alaska, which is quite cool. We've been to France, Italy, Spain, all over the place, which is quite good. Yeah, to do anything in Australia, so I'm away. Have you ventured to a have ventured to Australia, New Zealand yet? Uh, I well, we have friends all over Australia, Perth especially. So yeah, I I would. We are quite keen to get back to Perth quite soon, which will be which will be quite nice. And there's a lot of fishing over there, which I'm going to look forward to. Especially spearfishing as well. I quite I got quite into spearfishing when I was there last time. Yeah, probably a little bit um, nicer temperature down here. Um, yeah, it's it's well uh, you can see I've got I've got the sun creeping in through the window now at eleven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Finally, yeah. Oh, that's great. And um, to be, before you got into the the hunting industry as a profession, it was obviously something that you enjoyed as a hobby prior to that. How did that all start for you? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I I love what I'm doing is because I've always been someone who's enjoyed the outdoors. We we live we grew up in a, a tiny little village in rural North Yorkshire, so sort of that two thirds of the way up the country. Um, and I had friends from a very early age whose parents were gamekeepers, or they wanted you know they were aspiring gamekeepers. They had access to air rifles, shotguns, pistols, and all that sort of stuff. So from a very early age, we were, you know, the kids in the village who were jumping in the rivers and going, you know, trout and grayling fishing um, and also, you know, going to shoot the pheasants and stuff with the gamekeepers and going on those days where you're not shooting, you're one of the team, you're beating, you're, um, you're holding a flag there as a five-year-old and waving it around and hoping that you're doing it right. Uh, and from that, yeah, like I said, the, the use of the camera on those shoot days helped to essentially build my business because um, people wanted to see those photos and there was no one essentially when I when I first started doing it there was no one else really doing it mm. um, it's it's changed a lot now it's it's become a much more accessible um, 
profession essentially and there's a lot of people doing it which is quite good it's, and it's great to see the photos because there's a, there's a lot of very very good photographers in the uk now which is nice yeah the gap must have closed a little bit um with the technology that comes in the devices that you can buy these days you know you can get some really nice shots off some point and shoot type things but uh, i was talking to mark prior to um you joining the call earlier uh, and he said um, it's, at one stage he handed you his camera and he's never seen a better photo come out of it. So there's got to be a skill to it too. Right? That is that is a wholly true story. I I, I remember that because I remember it, it brought home how, what a pitifully poor photographer I was. And at the time and from that time, and, and I was, listen, I was actually taking photos from magazine for publication. So, I mean, they weren't bad. You know, they were getting, they're, they're getting published. They're part of stories, you know. I was actually, I was and still am at that time writing. So I was taking, I had a, you know, a, a, um, a, 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 a program level DSLR. Yeah, yeah. Very good length. Yeah good brand i was taking very clear pictures that were publishable and uh we were going on this deer hunt and i said to jonathan i said look um you just can you use my camera so i can have those photos and i can process them back and i remember giving him the camera and going off with the guide or the, the guy who was the color and you were just behind us taking photos and stuff like that and i and i and i remembered then um i got those photos and went Holy moly! Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. No, just so much better than I can do, you know, from the same camera. And I went, wow, that that that's that's saying something. That that the quality outcomes. I always remember that because I went, wow, I thought I was a good photographer, but yeah, I've had a similar similar experience. We had a um, photographer come with us out to Nundal. It's actually one of our members' wives is a is a photographer. Um, I think specifically, she's an animal photographer. So she came with us and uh, she just followed a, a group of four of us around and we managed to, you know, take a nice boar and um, take a couple of red deer and a couple of fallow deer. And it was a really good mixed bag experience over a few days. And she must have taken yeah. 30 or 40 photos, just of various different states. And she wasn't scared of getting up there and watching his head, you know, head skin out a pig. Uh, she wasn't scared yeah. of, you know, um, getting in there and, taking some some photos of his boiling heads out in a pot on the campfire and those sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. So she got some pretty good photos, very wholesome. Like she was very good at capturing it. Um, but most of those pictures, Mark, um, you won't know this, but uh, she donated the photos for us to use, and they are now pretty much um, the photos if you go onto the Australian Deer Association website and have a look at all of their you know imagery that sits behind the website. It's all her photos. And they, they wow, managed it. Yeah, so, but the quality was just amazing compared to anything that I could you know, possibly take, even with yeah. my point and shoot a phone that takes the best but photos in the world, I right? I think, I think that's it. I think there's a, there's a there's a basic understanding with photography, and you've got like three elements. You've just got the shutter speed, the aperture, and the ISO. And I, I used to do a lot of like tuition um before the kids because you'd go out on an evening around where we are you take a group of 10 15 people and you'd, you'd walk them around the lead streets and basically sort of say well we'll do some street photography we'll take some photos like night nighttime shots of architecture and stuff like that and they'd be like well how and one thing that always stuck in my mind was a guy who turned up with arguably like the best equipment you could possibly buy 
probably like £20,000 worth of, you know, a big sort of Nikon DSLR and a load of really nice lenses. And he's like, oh, so how do I make, um, how do I get that shot where the light, you, you see the light trails from the cars? And I was like, well, you don't even know what shutter speed is and you've got £20,000 worth of equipment. I was like, well, oh God, this is going to be a long lesson. And I think I think with with the shooting side of things, it's it's not so much the equipment, it's just trying to do something different always comes across quite well even if it doesn't work it i think trying to get those different angles is always quite nice but also you've got to get stuck in you've really got to be like right in the heart of it and i've just been editing you mentioned earlier um about uh, whether or not i do anything with deer and stuff like that i've just been editing the um four days of filming that i mentioned earlier about up in scotland because I was lucky enough to go up there with uh, with one of my friends, Matthew, and I've got some footage, which is just absolutely incredible, of those guys up on the hills um, shooting, and you can see, you know, you can see the deer getting shot, but not just that, it's, you want to show those parts where the deer have been shot, but, you know, you want to show the grolic, you want to show how they, um, how they, you know, inside the animals afterwards. We've got, we've got video footage of this chicken, which they feed every night, but they feed the chicken like the kidneys, it's like, well, it's part of the day, so let's show it. It's not gross. It's just a chicken who's, you know, scavenging at the end of the day. But mm. it's quite nice to sort of show those whole things and getting the different angles and stuff. Yeah, I agree. that's it. I think I think the artistic side of things is is very very important. Yeah, and you, you certainly capture things a different way. Um, ever since we've been yeah. um, waiting to pull this uh, podcast together, and we've had a couple of different uh, changes of dates, I've been watching some of the photos that yeah. have come up on Instagram and. Like you capture things in a very different way to 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 most people, so it's it's really interesting to watch. I enjoy, it. Um, like I said, really interesting way that you capture things, but it, it always makes me um, amused. I guess is the word I'll use. The things yeah, that people yeah. wear when they're hunting over where you live. There's this this, oh, this old school custom that everyone goes and puts on tweeds and funny hats and all of these sorts of things and. And uh, and goes off shooting for the day. What, what, tell us about that. It's um, it's a very stylish, whatever <laughs> afternoon that well, you're going on with a rifle over your shoulder or a shotgun, I should say. I think uh, again, it's another sort of traditional thing in the UK. We um, we are able to sort of dress up, which is quite nice. Um, we have you know history of using tweeds and all that sort of stuff, and I think that has continued, which is quite nice. You very rarely see people. Well, you wouldn't be allowed on a driven game shoot with camo, so you wouldn't be allowed to shoot in camouflage. It, you ha you would have to wear like a, a neutral green colour at, at best, sorry, at worst, or some sort of tweed. And then you have, you know, the plus fours, which are like uh, gathered up under your boot around around your knee. And then you have like a garter, which ties on your socks and all those sort of things. And Or you could wear trousers, tweed trousers and all that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, we are... We are quite lucky that we do have this sort of fantastic tradition, um, and I, I cannot see a point where the tradition of dressing like that will ever sort of will ever stop in the UK. And I, I quite enjoy it. I think there's there's definitely something nice about sort of making a big um, song and dance of the day when you're on when you're deer stalking uh, or when you're you know doing a game shoot. I think it's quite nice that everyone gets dressed up. Everyone makes an effort. Most people wear a tie. I. I sort of jump in between, depending on the day. If it's too hot outside, I will not wear a tie. It's it, it's. Um, but it, again, that 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 could be frowned upon. People people would say, "Oh, you should always be wearing a tie if you're game shooting." It's fascinating, and I guess it, it is. Yeah, it, it 
you know the type of clothing you're talking about is um you know it's warm gear but i guess you're, you're dealing with a lot cooler climates uh, you know I'm, I'm thinking about a hunt that uh, um and it's not the same thing i get that i'm, I'm going on a, a state forest hunt and i'm going to go and chase um you know goats and yeah uh, uh it, it's going to be 45 degrees it's going to be warm and wow. there's no way i'm going to stick yeah, a yeah. jacket or a hat on it's not gonna it's not gonna yeah. happen so it's just not it's not practical here I, I guess is what i'm saying uh but it's really interesting that that tradition is uphold i sort of liken it to golf even the um you know the golf clubs over here there's there's still a certain level a standard of clothing that you're supposed to wear when you go out on a golf day and things like that but um certainly interesting to see how they do it over over in the uk yeah i think i think the yeah the the, the likeness to golf is probably one that i'd I'd probably say it's very, very, yeah, very, very close because, the, yeah, I think if you turned up on a golf, on like a decent golf um, course without the right attire on, yeah, you'd have exactly the same feedback as you would do mm. if you turned up on a, a grouse shoot with the wrong attire on. Mm. It would be, but it's, it's you're not playing. Practical. Or... Is it practical yes. clothing? I, it is. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, design, it's obviously designed for it, but it's... You know, like the 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 stuff that we use to hunt in, if we're going into alpine country and things like that, it's very technically created specifically for hunting. You know, it's not hiking clothes necessarily. A lot of the things that we're wearing are designed for the elements that we're in. Yours is similar. Um, yeah, we have. So the the tweeds that they used to wear up in Scotland, you're wearing like a, a relatively sort of thick wool tweed with possibly like a silk lining. So you're keeping warm. Most of the rain will run off if not soak in. Um, and the breeks or, you know, plus fours or whatever you're wearing, you have like one piece of material which basically comes down to just above the ankle. It's hooked under. So the water sort of runs down the side of your leg and past your boot. Mm. Um and that that's where it used that's where it all sort of come like came from but yeah obviously now the the technical equipment that we have in the in the uk is fantastic as well so for the deer stalking like the last trip i went on up in scotland again um i i just wore like a basically big pair of like salopettes like a, a what, like a waterproof salopette but half the guys were wearing the uh Kui, um, yeah. you know like technical technical camo with like they'd have like a technical shirt on like really really super lightweight but warm and they'd have um they'd have like a, a very specific like lightweight stalking boot with a um uh, what they're called um like a technical trouser and all that sort of stuff yeah i mean it's 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 money as much as anything isn't it you could spend an absolute fortune on fortune on hunting gear um oh yeah but I, yeah i, I think in the uk so i got my well it's important to to kind of understand that actual tweed is actually hunting clothing it's just that it's yeah, yeah. it's it's traditional hunting clothing it's not you know it's not its original purpose wasn't for presentation as much as it was for use across the whole range of things so tweed is a you know it's just an old technical hunting attire you know it's before they had synthetics and things like that so there's actually real yeah. purpose in it um, you wear a tweed coat, and I mean, I own one. I just don't have it here in Australia. It's, it sits in a cup in a box in the UK. Yeah. You wear that in cold weather, and you realise how how fundamentally well designed that is for the climate you're in. And two, the other thing is, um, you're always wet in England. Okay, that's it's it's a reality. You are constantly <laughs> yeah, yeah. at one level of you know somewhere on that scale. 
And so, you know, things like boots and all that is this realisation and that it's muddy. The mud is very, very uh, tactile. It sticks to stuff. I remember we were, we did a an afternoon's hunt with um, Steve Kelly and it was uh, what they call a, a, a course hunt or a rough hunt where basically you just go out with the shotguns and you walk the hedgerows and you're just trying to scare up birds and you, and it's a great way to spend an afternoon. It's like small game hunting for rabbits. Yeah. It's birds, you know, same thing. You're just basically trying to scare up the game and you may or might not have dogs with you depending on, we didn't have dogs with us, but we got back to, and it was on a farm. We got back to the, to the, to the farm, the work area of the farm where the sheds and so on was. And literally we were using a high pressure hose to clean your boots. That's what you're doing. Literally, you know, gurneying your boots. And, you know, Steve was saying, yeah, these boots are pretty good because they've lasted a season of this. <laughs> and I thought, you know, and that's how he's rating the quality that it, these boots had lasted six months of being gurney washed every day through, yeah, after, yeah. after stomping through mud. So it, it does give you a different appreciation of, of what your clothing goes through because, um, you know, it's just a wholly different environment. And, um, and again, you know, the, that, that the tweed idea of hunting and especially sport hunting in the UK is, a, is, is started in Victorian times. So, you know, and, and that's what they were. And, you know, the, the, the ghillie suit that all the, you know, all the guys like to play, who like to play, you know, um, sniper when they're out hunting and, and have a yeah. ghillie seat. Well, the reason it's called a ghillie seat was that that's, that's a, that's a Scottish term. The ghillie, that's yeah. and that, and that's what they used to do. They invented that idea of you know, basically making a, a garment of various different cuts of cloth to to break up your 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 outline when you're out hunting. So that's why a ghillie is is that's it's an it's a Scottish term for for huh. the for yeah, the, basically yeah. the the guide or is the ghillie the guide or is he the person who carried? Uh, the ghillie, a ghillie. There's two different types of gillies, I believe. There's a Scottish ghillie, which would look after that sort of a certain section of, um, uh, sorry, a salmon ghillie, which would look after a certain section of the river, like a gamekeeper. And then there's also a ghillie up in Scotland on the deer, which would be a very similar yeah. sort of position, but for deer. So it's almost like a gamekeeper side of things. But yeah. also, they tend to be very, very sort of knowledgeable and very sort of uh, that. They know they're. Uh, I've got a bad network quality here. Um, they tend to be very sort of technical with everything and know and know about that sort of, you know, their river, their land, their deer, and the husbandry behind it all. Yeah. Mm. Sure. And, there's, I, I, and I'd agree. We are we are we are generally quite wet here in the UK. It's one thing when you go to different countries like Australia. It's a very dry temperature, um, whereas no matter where you are in the UK, it always feels wet. It always feels slightly damp. You get used to it after 37 years, though, so it's fine. It is very true, mate. It yeah. is very true. Like, you don't just – you just don't go outside. You just don't kind of go, oh, I'm going to put the bins out. Oh, yeah, go out, Pete. That's okay. You don't do that. And yeah. that, and yeah. I think that's one, no, of the, no. that's one of the great learnings is that, you know, um, whilst it looks a little bit odd to us and while, it you know, it does have a – very traditional component to about fashion and about looks which goes right back to victorian times there's also an amazing amount of practicality to it um you know there is this sense of practicality to that to that clothing um and i mean yeah. when i when i hunt there because 
I'm a, a you know I'm a regarded as a visitor. I tend to get a little bit of a little bit of leeway on the dress, but I tend to wear basically just greens. So you know I've got yeah, yeah, yeah. and shirts and stuff like that. And uh, and and again, and depending on where you are, you do have very different standards. So um, yeah, a rough shoot is just well, like you say, going out. Um, uh, I went on a farm shoot, which was kind of like in the middle. Um, a farm shoot was like a, a country cricket match, you know. You still wore yeah, your yeah. you still wore your whites, but there was it was a little bit more casual. And then you know, going to Alaska, where you know, was staying at the country estate, that was for me anyway a pretty you know the, the high level. But there is there is certainly levels above that one as well. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Some some of the uh, the more rougher shoots. And farm shoots and stuff like that, you can get away with wearing whatever you're comfortable in. Ties, ties are useful, but it's certainly not a you know end game sort of situation. Mm. What are your plans for the future then? Have you guys got any any sort of trips planned? Well, we've got plenty planned. Um, we're dealing we, with we're dealing with border restrictions regarding COVID, which is is yeah. kind of putting the kibosh on a lot of of a lot of um. Uh, hunting for us uh we're we're trying to put together a, a trip into central um central new south wales to hunt state state land down there or state forest down there known as the pillaga which is pretty much my favorite place to go and um that we're trying to put that together and more generally I've, i'm i'm lucky enough to have access to a to a block about 90 minutes from home that i hunt most of uh, couple of times a month so red deer block so trying to keep the keep the game ticking over so what about you ian oh there's uh more opportunity than i have time for at the moment um uh covid being the only problem that i have um you know at the moment we're in a situation where we can cross into the new south wales side of the border uh, but we have to stay within a zone and if we do that, then we can come back without having to get COVID tests and those sorts of things. So we're fairly free in that space. There's really one hunting block in that space that we, we like to go to. So I'm booked to go to that on Monday. Uh, looking forward to that. It's been about eight months since I've been able to get out. So um, um, sand flies, heat, water. We've had record rain. It doesn't matter. <laughs> mm. I'm going to get bogged. I'm going to get bitten. I'm going to have a great time. Um, I had a, a friend pop in there the other day and um, there were animals in all directions. So I'm looking forward to getting there. Um, I also do a lot of mentor hunting. So, you know, I take groups of new hunters, um, more often than not putting them on their first deer of their lives um, and taking them through that whole process of, of stalking, or finding, stalking, taking, butchering, getting it home, all of that. So um, we've just recently booked in five weekend trips for the year. So we're just um, taking people on for those those trips, which will be in our uh, in our fellow rut period, and then on top of that, there's like I said, Mark, we've got uh, Pilliger as soon as we can get to it, and there's the Samba season, and hopefully Buffalo up in the territory come mm-hmm. August. There's so much going on; it, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It just keeps getting pushed back and back and back because we're yeah. waiting for the, yeah. the the okay and the all clear to go, and then you get some of these crazy variants of the virus come in, and they sort of put you back to square one. So um, the plans are there. There's lots to do. It's just a matter of timing. Yeah, we, we, we do have we do have the idea of a buffalo hunt in in um, probably August in 2022, um, which is pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Um, very tough country. Yeah. 
very tough, um, yeah, challenging, but got to argue uh, with the crocodiles to get there. Yeah, you gotta, yeah, sorry, I got to step over the crocs to shoot the buff, but um, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, as they said, the worst. Um, so yeah, mate, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think do you think that the uh, restrictions have aided the populations of animals with obviously no travel, no one shooting? There must have been there must have been some sort of positive to come out of it that no one has been able to travel. There hasn't been as many people in those areas. The animals won't be as shy as you know, as gun shy or as you know, a lot of them might not have seen people. Would that have impacted anything? Do you think? You you would have to say that. Yes, there would be a positive influence on that. But um, more importantly, uh, we're in our second year of good rain. Okay, yeah. so last year was a very, very good season um, agriculturally. Um, like last year for a period of time, there was a there was restrictions were off the border and we could travel to New South Wales. And I travelled twice in April and in July and all the way down the New England Highway was just every grain silo was full and outside the silo were these tarps. That, and I mean and I mean tarps, I mean like 50, 100 metre long piles covered up in various tarps. And wow. and that's played out that, you know, the, the fact that agriculture is having a huge and, and that's why they had the mouse plague too, because there's so much food around. Yeah. Um, so you've got we've had that, and we've now. So that was like you know, a huge influencer, water, being the big challenge, and of course with with that so much groundwater comes so much ground feed, and then we're now just we're into that again, and we've mm. just had for many parts of the east coast this has been the you know, the, the the wettest November in, in 100 years. So not only have you got the re- restrictions in terms of hunting, you've also got an incredibly, especially on the, the whole of the eastern seaboard and, and right through the eastern um, hinterland, has been a huge amount of water moved through. And so, and I mean, there's a lot of places that are in flooding. And so, you know, once that flood water breaks, and, and and disperses things like pigs and stuff like that are just going to go through the roof. They're they're saying that, for instance, um, I was reading tonight. Probably expect the locust plague because you know that's they're going to come out of the ground again because that's what they do. Uh, when we were down in New South Wales last year, that that was just the well one of the not the tail end but the kind of the periods of um, slowdown in the mouse plague. We were in a little town. And the boys were counting all the dead mice on the on the footpath, and they they got around seventy or eighty, and they stopped. You know, there was. Wow. And, um, we went. Oh, when we went yeah, when we went through one, um, when we went through down, or when we went down, sorry, the first night we stayed at a place called Kinnabarabran, and it was uh, we went down on Easter. Everything was closed. Okay, it was it was literally Easter Sunday. Everything's closed. There was one shop that we found open. Um, to get it and we were staying at a little caravan park but the only thing that was open in the center of town was a guy who had his you know like a a, a ute decked out to sell stuff and he was selling mouse traps <laughs> just, yeah, he's just on the right and there's people just around him he was just he doing buy quite a healthy business of selling mouse traps you know couldn't buy them anywhere the local yeah. hardware i mean we have you know huge hardware stores department stores um uh, you know size of a football field you know, un, under the roof type 
type stores and they were they were out of baits they were out of traps yeah. they were out of everything i could drive home from work it's a 15 minute drive um, from my office in town back to home uh, and if i did that at night time if i could count fast enough i would have counted in the numerous thousands of mice that i would be able to play hit and run with uh, on the way home um, it was just yeah. unbelievable but um yeah and i think to, to answer your, your question another way though um yes the, uh, the the lack of people heading to the hills and and chasing animals is, is going to make them less gun shy. They're going to be more available. The, you know the, their breeding cycles have been uninterrupted. All of those sorts of things were positive. But what mm. I did find was when the restrictions were lifted, um, where I would you know I could go hunting any day I wanted. So you know you know you'd, you'd just schedule a hunt you know in three weeks time and off you'd go and that would be fine in in the in the few weeks when hunting restrictions were, were lifted and we could go everyone with a license went hunting mm. yeah so yeah, everything yeah. got scared or shot um because yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know it's just the way it was it just happened to be that we were allowed out um somewhere around the raw period so it was like okay <laughs> we've all been stuck in mm. we've, we've all just got to get out and so i think it had the reverse effect just as quickly yeah and in terms of and one of the other challenges is of, strangely enough, one of the challenges of water is is it disperses animals. So, uh, you know, in drought, I mean, water is always important. In drought, when it's scarce, the old rule is find water, sit on water, animals will come to you. Okay. When every depression in the ground is holding up, you know, a, a puddle of water, those kind of rules don't apply. So you'll have an issue where you, and if you're hunting a big block, so for instance, uh, I can't remember the actual size of Pilliga because it ranges, but it's it's about a quarter of a million acres, I think, in terms of what you have access to. And then there's actual parts of it you don't have access to. Um, and that's just Pilliga East. Then you cross the road and you're into a whole nother block. If you go west, you're into a whole nother block. Um, for instance, Pilliga West, which generally you have the whole of Pilliga West access to, is I think 20 by 20 kilometres square, basically. That's Pilliga West. So you've got massive chunks of dirt, okay? So if it's dry, you kind of go, okay, let's find water and hang around water. When it's wet, they're just wherever they are. So you can go days yeah. and days and days of not seeing them. And, and that actually happened when we were we were down there in wintertime in the middle of the drought and it had been going for a number of years and water was incredibly scarce. And um, there was three or four dams and this mob of goats was literally moving between these dams. And on the last day, Tim and I just happened to be at the right dam at the right time when that mob came in. Um, but what I'd been successful at doing is taking pigs off that dam. Um, and that just worked for us. Uh, when we went down there um, after the rains, that dam was overflowed. It overflowed. And what you could see in terms of around that dam, there wasn't a single animal track because they just didn't bother going there anymore. The water was everywhere. Yeah, and so we spent three days not seeing an animal just looking 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 and as as the week started to dry out we started to see them and so and then and so we had to change our whole approach 
to how to hunt because you know the abundance of water and and now the abundance of feed will actually mean they just don't need to they just don't need to expose themselves so they can they can be wherever they are so you've got to find them so it does it does throw up an interesting challenge you know a lot of water yeah you learn yeah. a lot from an animal i've got a, a little uh flock of sheep out in the paddock out the back that i talked about earlier briefly and um you know those sheep would normally be on their feet wandering around the paddock looking for the for the greenest pick and, and whatever they could chew on for the day. Um, I don't think I've seen them stand up for three or four days. They just lie in a patch of grass and, uh, and just chew like this. They don't bother moving. they got enough water and enough food. Yeah. Right. So that that's the challenge. And when you're dealing with large blocks, even small, I mean, even, you know, Severn is a small block, but it's still a few thousand acres. So you can spend a lot, and it's not uh, any way like um, uh, agricultural acres, it's forest acres. So you can spend a lot, of, you can you could walk around there for a while and not see anything. So um, uh, so it does throw its own particular challenge up. Now, apparently it's so wet in there, Mark, at the moment that the tip that I was given is that, I mean, we know that goats like rocks. Mm. Um, it, it's just a, a fact, it's, it's what they like, but um now um one of the fellas that was out there the other day he said those those animals are trying to get to high ground mm. because otherwise they're standing around in, in, in sodden uh, yeah. water all yeah. day um they're, they're just looking for a dry place for their feet so yeah. you're finding them right up right up high okay so mate before you, you you just spoke a little bit about um you know the video and and the work i mean give us a run uh, or give us a, some insight into is it the untamed angler hmm. um yeah so the un, the untamed anglers came around um about three or four years ago my friend james um james and ripon they met on uh, one of the bbc's uh, it was called the big fish earth's wildest waters i think you guys can probably watch that in australia um and it was amazing and james james essentially won this fishing show which took him and ripon around the world like they fished in god I, I think almost every continent uh, chasing, I think it was about a dozen or two dozen different types of fish. And they were fished from, um, they fished from like massive sort of um, sport fishing boats in the Caribbean. They fished uh, for salmon and stuff like that up in, up in um, Sweden and the Nordic countries. They went to Thailand and caught carp and stuff like that. Um, and James actually won this show. So he was the winner. And I met James at a fishing show and we got talking and he said, look, it's uh, what I want to do is create like a new, a new TV show. Um, so we filmed a mini pilot and the, what works is the fact that these guys get on so well. And like James and Ripon and our, essentially what I classify as our mentor, Howell, um, they all they all just pick it like little children all the time, but they all get on so, so well. And I think that's what works quite nicely. Mm. Um, so yeah, we we fished. Um, we did. We filmed for about a year. We filmed about forty-five days um, on the water. We chased essentially seven or eight different species, and we created Britain's iconic fish. So a little a little TV show called Britain's iconic fish. Um, so if you type in the untamed anglers into uh, into your search engine, you'll get basically this platform up or our website, and each one of those you can be directed. Any anyone can watch it around the world. Um, but yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's it's a very very good insight into fishing in the UK. So if any of your any of your listeners want to watch, God, what is that? There's about five or six hours worth of footage. There is a small charge to watch it, but it's a couple of bucks. It's not a lot of money. Um, 
yeah, we'd, we'd urge you to watch it and it'll help support our second series. We've got quite a few um, quite a few ideas for the next one. I think we might go down a bit more of a, uh, it's the best way of putting it, dramatic second series chasing because we've got some monster fish in the UK. We can fish for, we've got four or five different types of really big sharks we can chase. Uh, just very, very local to where I am, but we also get these um, massive rays and we're mm. starting to get cod like huge big cod up off the uh, the north of the UK now as well. So we've got some exciting plans for the second series. Well, maybe there is a, an opportunity for a down under series, Jonathan, because uh, yeah, yeah. we lay claim to some pretty good fishing and we, we lay claim to some pretty so, good different cod, but some freshwater cod fishing in the Barramundi and various different things like that. Um, yeah, that would be an interesting one to, to put together in the coming years or seasons. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I know uh, I know the guys with certain. Well, James and Ripon are currently in Panama, so I, I hate them. Oh. But um, yeah, we, we'd certainly we'd certainly be keen to come across. And I mean, even north of Perth. So when we went fishing in Perth, we were catching some incredible fish, oh, yeah. incredible fishing off uh, Rottnest Island and stuff like that. And I said, like just just diving around the island, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Really, really that good fun. Just... There's, there's, you have a lot to a lot of a lot of uh, variety. In Australia, which is nice. Yeah. And the fact that that's a like a television quality production, what does that look like in terms of gear and things like that? Because, you know, we're all interested in, in videoing and, and production and, and producing things that people can watch, but you're kind of producing at a level that's on TV. So yeah. what kind of gear are, are you using for that and what kind of support and what what sits behind that? I'll show you. Sam, could you just grab a second? We'll just grab a big one off the video. Nice one. Russian's iconic. Set, right, uh, yeah, okay, set, buddy. Uh, Bring it towards. I'll set this. Hang on. I'll take it off the tripod. There's a rig coming. There it is. And it, it's, well, <laughs> it looks fairly. I, I just. I, it's it's not that massive, if I'm honest. This is like, like a small one. Holy so that's um that, it, that's just a Sony FS5. So it's four or five years old. It's got a screen. I mean, this is what I was actually going to record this on this morning. Then I thought it might be a bit too convoluted to rig this up for a podcast. Um, but yeah, essentially, I mean, it's not even the gear. As long as um, hang on. You can you could use absolutely anything. You could you could shoot you could shoot on um, any sort of camera really. We we obviously have some quite nice equipment at our disposal, but you you could use absolutely anything. Um, so we 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 were sh- we shot on the Sony FS5, FX sevens and nines, um, but the audio is the tricky thing. And and back then we still probably didn't have the audio that we wanted and that we would have now. Um, because you have four or five different people who all need lapel mics. You want all those lapel mics going into every camera. Mm. You have field recorders. You want someone there who's on sound for each of the different teams that are fishing. We ha- we only had one cameraman, uh, one cameraman per uh, two people, which ideally you'd like two or three. Um, so again, it, it's it's just cost. We, we produce the first series at cost. Uh, myself and my team have done all the editing we've done all the graphics all the we've had music gifted to us from all over the place and international djs and stuff like that which have been quite cool nice. um 
but yeah, it's it was it was pulled together on a shoestring. There's a lot I'd change, but um, I think from the concept, from the idea about showing the best of what we have in the country, uh, really makes it stand out. And the fact that the guys are so nice, so knowledgeable, and really work together, I think is the is the winner. Um, so yeah, we're we're still hoping to get it to um, various different TV channels. We're still speaking to different like broadcast channels here in the UK. Uh, but again, we've created this own platform to try and monetize what we've already created to allow us to to get that second series funded sooner rather than later, um, because it's it's a start of the journey. Um, these sort of these things are always the start of the journey. So we'll, it will be interesting to see where it ends up in another five years, because they do take a long time to create. If you're filming for a year, it might then take a year to edit to get everything yeah. perfect, and then right. another year, another two years to pitch it to get it through to TV channels and stuff like that. So fingers crossed. We'll see. So, is that this? And with that kind of uh, approach, is that the same kind of approach you were using when you were filming the Ibex, or and and you know and various other things? Or are you because of its simple you know the nature? Are you are a little bit more um, a DIY in those kind of situations? Um, yeah. So with the shoot days and stuff that we filmed before in the past, which. Uh, just all on my like my YouTube and stuff like that on Ibex. Most of those days, it was just me. You'd have you might have lapel mics, you might not. You tend to use a shotgun mic to cover most of the audio. Um, and again, it was just me, probably with a little camera like this FS5, um, two or three different prime lenses, um, and that that was about it. If I'm honest, these cameras nowadays you can film at up to 4K resolution. You can shoot 240 frames a second instantly. Um, but again, it's not really the quality of the camera. It's, it's like with the photography that we mentioned earlier, it's about trying to find those unique angles that haven't already been covered by a billion other photographers or videographers in this case. Um, yeah, I think, and there's, there's some tricks. It's, it, you know, you can, you can try and use lenses to create different effects. You can use a wide angle and, and you know, film up at someone. You can use a, a huge big zoom lenses to get those detail shots. Um, but yeah, I try and, it's hard when you're doing it yourself because you've got to cover absolutely everything. So if you're filming someone shooting a deer, do you go behind that person, film them shooting in their reaction, or do you go and film the deer getting shot? Oh, you can't yeah. do both. Yeah, you, you know yourself. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah that's the point, isn't you, it? Yeah. You can't, you can't set the camera on record here and then have yourself shooting in, in shot here and hopefully get everything, but it just doesn't work. So you've got to, you've got to concentrate on one thing. I, I actually managed to do that, but what it meant was I actually filmed myself missing. No, oh, no. That was it. <laughs> so I managed to figure out a, a, on a recent hunt, I managed to get the camera set up on the deer wide enough that they stayed in frame. I then went about 20 metres away from the camera and had another camera filming me Brilliant. And that, yeah, and like, um, I, and, and then I managed to take the shot and I missed. So, you know, right, it, it was all kind of there about right, but we missed. Yeah, and and of course, when you look at the the video of me missing, because um, I'm shooting from not from the camera angle. Yeah, it's it looks very, like it's, it's very away. well. It's very deceiving. It's like, oh, it's you know, yeah. and, and it's absolutely. You can't actually draw any kind of conclusion whatsoever because it's it's completely different angle. So, but yeah, yeah. I, I think um, 
for a lot of people, how do you turn this for and for very different, different reasons? How do you turn this into video is or into something you know a, a memory other than you know a, either video or something like that or photography is very important to people. So um, and understanding the complexity of it, and I, I like the fact that mm. you talk about the fact that. Um, it's not just the gear. I was, I was reading something very recently about drone um, footage, and this guy was pretty blunt and says, like, if if you don't introduce why you're using drone footage, um, all you do is you create this really, really high quality, boring stuff of this looking down on something that has no context that people don't understand about or anything like that. And you're yeah, because yeah. you, you know what you're doing, but from someone looking at it, they kind of go, oh, you know, yeah. yeah, it's like, what to yeah, what end? Yeah. So I think that's, and you know, those things like angles and understand and trying to create a story is, is one of the, what, what I've always liked about your work is, is, is the story that it creates and, and how it portrays yeah. something or, you know, portrays something. It's not just a, it's just not like a chronological recording of this event. There's something in it. Mm. Yeah, there's a a That's big difference, it. a big difference between not just in quality, but um, between, like you say, point and shoot, first person, you know, recording of whatever I did today versus building yeah. a script. Mm. Yes, yes, I've taken that animal, but that doesn't mean that you can't take a second shot in three different angles that wasn't the actual shot, but it's on the same location to get the what it is that you need to pull the story together. That doesn't happen if you've just got yeah. your GoPro and mm. you you know you you're wandering no, around no, with the first person stuff. But you have gotta have the you don't want it to be over scripted so that you're creating a false or maybe you do. It depends what, what what it is you're trying to create. But you know, um yeah, I think you you need the art of storytelling to be able to do it. Like what me me and Mark just mentioned about about the deer stalking where where if if I'm with the clients do they want to see them having the shot or do they want to see the deer getting hit? You can't film both. You could film over their shoulder. You, you might be able to get enough depth of field for both to be slightly sharp, but generally you wouldn't be able to get both sharp. So if the deer is 100, 200 yards away, there's no way you're going to have the focus on both. There's always going to be one or the other. So hey, what, what we do in that situation is you obviously we probably film the deer getting shot and then you might get the client to take a second shot if the deer's gone down properly. So, you know, it's not at the deer, it's somewhere else close, and then film that in detail as well, or film in front of them, or set the camera up so the deer's down, there's no panic anymore, the deer's, oh, the deer's definitely dead, we know the deer's dead, we don't need a quick follow-up. Set the camera up, do a couple more different shots, get a close-up of the barrel, get a close-up of the bolt going back home and all that sort of stuff. You can do all that on a GoPro, and maybe one day I might try, but... Um, I think even nowadays using your iPhone, you can create some absolutely spent, like absolutely exceptional photography. And most most of the stuff on my Instagram is iPhone stuff, um, because oh, I yeah. don't have the time yeah. to propagate it with. Yeah, to the point, but you're but you're you're building a story. You're not just yeah, creating exactly. a memory. You're building a story, and yeah. that requires yeah. angles. Uh, and that's interesting what you say, yeah. though. I would have thought, and I don't know why why you don't, but. Um, it's not hard to stick a GoPro on a tripod, you know, off to the side of somebody while no. they're taking their shot, whilst you've got your larger camera doing another one. It's just more gear to carry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I had um, I bruised shoulders from the first day of stalking up in Scotland because I carried a uh, a full tripod. I carried that camera, 
all of my audio equipment and a 500mm f4 uh, Canon, Canon lens, which was a perspective this size. No, yeah. yeah, and we, we did, I think, we did about 18 kilometers, I think, just on that first day, but we, we did about four of those going vertical. So it was like literally mountain, and then you think you think you're at the top, and then there's another one. <laughs> oh no, you think you're at the top, and then a, a stag starts calling two miles away. Right, we'll go and see if we can shoot that one. Good times. Yeah, yeah. Um, another question I had for you was: um, um, so all of the experiences that you've had in videoing others and hunting with others, uh, for those that are looking to travel overseas and do something similar—not the videography, but the actual hunting. Are there any particular places, countries around Europe that you've been to that offer an easier opportunity, not necessarily cheaper, but easier opportunity than others? Um, you know, you've talked about if, if you come to the UK and you know somebody, you know, you can probably yeah. get yourself organised onto a, you know, a farm trip or um, various different terms. Can't remember. You can spend some money. You can spend a lot of money, or you can spend less money doing various different yeah, things. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. I hear Germany is quite difficult. You know, yes, you can go to an outfitter and you can have all of that stuff organised, but are there uh, certain countries that offer opportunities that, that are, are worth pursuing that, if you're heading that far from Australia? I think I think the UK probably covers everything because mm. you, you, we do have almost every type of shooting. And even, like we've said, with Facebook and stuff like that, it's very easy to sort of connect with someone Um I think most of the people in the UK would be relative, would be able to organise something. Most of the people, what's the best way of putting it? A lot, you have agents in the UK. So an agent in the UK is probably very similar to, you know, an agent anywhere. And they will be able to organise you basically anything depending on the, depending on your budget. Mm. Um, some will some will deal in bigger days. Some will deal in smaller days. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of guys in the UK now who will be able to, you know, set you up for a couple of hundred pounds. They'll take you to a small a small driven driven shoot day or a walked up day or something like that and they will be able to to sort out absolutely everything for you um germany i think is quite tricky because there's um uh there's not as much shooting so the bird shooting over there is very um sparse you generally need to have access to the land they don't release birds like we do in the uk i think the uk is probably one of the only countries where you can go and shoot a lot of pheasants in a day um there's places like Hungary and the Czech Republic and stuff. They're they're apparently very easy to get to get to and to shoot. Um, Spain, you can go and shoot partridges very very easily. Again, it's 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 generally through the estate itself or an agent. Mm. Um, but I I just say to most people who want to shoot, the UK has basically um, everything that you'd want. If anyone wants any direction on anything or they want to be put in touch with an outfitter or an agent. Um, just message me on social media. Same with videography or photography. If anyone wants any help with anything, they can always just send us a message. And, and like, like Mark, I'm sure there's a way. I know it's, it's. I do it all the time, and I think it's quite nice that people can have uh, a solid recommendation for people that will look after them. Because it, it's very easy to, you know, to spend a lot of money on something that you might not be 100% impressed by. But having been to most of these estates, I'll be able to point, point you all in the right direction. Nice. That's really handy. No problem. No problem at all, guys. Mark, have you got any other bits and pieces that you wanted to cover before I grab some social media details? I was just thinking, uh, probably, you know, you, you were saying that what you're doing with your business, you did mention a clothing line. What's that about? Secret. Secret. Oh. Okay. 
Yeah, don't worry, it will be available worldwide. We won't tell anyone. Yeah, Promise. it's all right. No, um, yeah, I can't tell you. Okay. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't signed anything yet. So as, as long as we it, get the, as long as we get the, uh, the Southern Hemisphere exclusive, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be fine. Oh, well, that's right. We, we do need a sponsor, so you know. There's but a lot of people. In your I don't know. Head. I don't know if Tweed would cut it for us. <laughs> you know, like it'd be like you know, two bodies. Got to be two, two bodies were found today in the Pilliga, remarkably well dressed, <laughs> but dehydrated. Boy, they were well presented. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> two English gents were found in uh, yeah, right. in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Forty-five degree two heat. English gents in tweeds were found today in the Pilliga State Forest. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't worry. We all yeah. yeah, we already cover your hemisphere with this one, so it's not too bad. Okay. That's so, uh, I, I'm interested in this one. I'm interested. I'll, I'll, I'll text you. I'll message our Facebook group later. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. Okay. okay. And um, as far as um. Uh, ways to get hold of you is Jonathan M. McGee is your um, name. Instagram His name. name and your name. Yeah. Is a dot yeah. dot to Jonathan dot M dot McGee. I've noticed as your name, but yeah. Jonathan M. McGee being your Instagram um, location that people can find you. Untamed Angler, yeah. Britain's iconic fish worth looking up, paying a few dollars and um, you were the videographer, but not the man in front of the camera, I'm assuming. That's what I got from that. Um, yeah, although the description does uh, say a motley crew of fishing fanatics, which probably could be you. Could, yeah, that covers me as well. But yeah, there's uh, there's myself and a couple of others who've done all the video for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and as far as YouTube goes, where did people find you on YouTube? Um, just just under my name, if you type my name in, you'll get about, I think there's about 80 or 90 different films on there. And it, again, it ranges from deer stalking films from 10 years ago, uh, all the way up to, well, I haven't put anything on there recently, but we are doing some more stuff, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Awesome. And there is a, there is a photo getting around of me, of me photo bombing you on a shoot too. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to try and find that one. That's a good one. That that should, to be fair, that should probably be the uh, the you know the podcast photo. Yeah, actually, that that would make a very a good one. one. Yeah, good professional photo being photobombed <laughs> in the background. That's yeah. right. That's right. Well, there's there's a crew and everything, and I'm, I'm sticking yeah. that. That's it. No, that's awesome. All right. Well, we certainly know where to where to find you, and um, as soon as we're allowed, I think we've got a trip over to the UK um, on the cards as soon as we're allowed to do it. So um, I'll, I'll look you up for a for a pint or something, if nothing else. And, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, let's do it. Oh, we'll you'll get on. We'll you'll get a shot goes. on, mate. You won't go that far for, for beer. You'll go. Right. We'll, we'll get you on or something. Yeah, we'll, yeah, I haven't yet. I haven't yet convinced um, my lovely wife that when we travel overseas, I should be allowed out for X amount of days <laughs> to go hunting. Yeah, but that's the thing. You're not going to go out for X amount of days. You're going to go out for X amount of hours. Yeah, I know. It's a different literally, thing, isn't it? Literally. Yeah. You're yeah. going just going to go, go sit in a treehouse for a little while and watch deer walk past. You're going to go to a village and you're going to take your lovely family to this village and say, walk around this village, look at these very cool shops, have something to eat. I will be back in three hours. With some medallions of... Maybe kitchen. or maybe not, but that's what it is like, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you an example. When I went last time, I had a day with Steve hunting deer, and so 
uh, I sent my the family went to a, a lovely village, not a village, a town called Winchester. Very Looked nice. Around, did all the historic things. I went deer hunting, mate. And we both met up. We all, as a family, we met up back at the place where we were staying at five o'clock for dinner. It's it's incredibly yeah. civilized, mate. In that way, in sense where there isn't, you don't have to kind of go, okay, let's leave now and get there this afternoon before and then set up. It's no. Get in the car. Fifteen minutes later, we'll be in a paddock. Onto it. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 So, yeah. No, most most shooting in the UK, you won't be travelling over four hours. So, I mean, uh, it, depending on where you go, where it was, I, Mark actually came to Leeds last time, which was quite nice. And then the the other place that we met at was two hours drive away. So there'll always be something. There's always. Mm. I mean, if you come between sort of September and end of January, there'll be game shooting, but there's deer stalking all year round. Mm. Yeah. Sounds great. That's it. Okay. Well, look, it's it was actually really good to talk to you again, Jonathan. I haven't seen you for a couple of years, and we were hopefully to be in England this Christmas, but we're not going to make it for obvious reasons. So it's great to talk to you, and it's great to see that the business has grown. I remember last time we were in Leeds. I think you just moved into the office then. So, and it's yeah, yeah. great to see you doing some of the work with you know the with with the both the fishing and the hunting. And as always, it's good to see um, you're getting out there and getting amongst it. So, mate, I really appreciate your time and uh, being the fact that you're actually in your work hours. Um, so it's great to talk to you again, and of course, learn a little bit more about what's happening over there in the UK. Lovely. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, cheers for letting me on the podcast. Hope it goes well. Good luck editing. No worries. Thanks, Jonathan. All right, guys. Thanks so much, guys. See you soon. See you, mate.